0: This podcast is supported by our friends at AG1 by Athletic Greens. It's a product that I use every single day. I started taking Athletic Greens after I was treated for Hodgkin's lymphoma many, many years ago. I was concerned about just how my immune system had suffered through chemotherapy treatment, and I wanted to get something that I could develop a routine around, and instead of taking a bunch of different pills every day, I discovered Athletic Greens, and it really hit the mark for me in sort of the ease in which I could adopt it into my daily routine. Athletic Green is a combination of 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens that helps you start your day right. It's a special blend of ingredients that supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, all the things. AG1 is lifestyle friendly, so whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything, while still tasting good. I'm a big believer in this use of a multivitamin product, And I actually hope to do an episode around this more specifically to get a little bit of a take on why it's important, particularly for aging athletes. To give you some perspective on the cost of AG1, it costs less than $3 a day, so it's probably less than that coffee or cold brew habit you have. Athletic Greens has over 7,500 five-star reviews and is recommended by professional athletes. Right now, it's time to claim your health and arm your immune system with a convenient daily nutritional product especially heading into cold and flu season. It's just one scoop of water every day. That's it. No need for a million pills or different supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash thegravelride. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash thegravelride to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now, let's jump right into today's episode, starting with some catchy theme music. Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast in the Dirt. I'm Craig Dalton, and I'm joined by my co-host, Randall Jacobs. Randall, how are you today? Doing well, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great. Happy to see you. I feel like I've had pent up conversations in my mind to have with you that I haven't had to have haven't been able to have and gosh I think it's been 4 or 5 weeks since we last recorded together
1: it's been quite some time i've been able to have some pretty enjoyable conversations myself both with uh, monica garrison on the last episode and craig calfee so i've gotten my my fill but uh how about yourself
0: <laughs> yeah yeah a couple good ones in the can already that we need to release i've been talking to a lot of athletes lately just cuz it's the beginning of the season and i'm curious A lot of new names coming to gravel. I'm just always curious how they're thinking about it. And actually, I've been extracting some really valuable bits of information in my mind for the mid-pack athlete like myself, just about how to kind of consider those long days in the saddle. And obviously, you're chasing wheels and how many candles to burn, all the types of things you need to be considering if you want to get to the end of one of these big, long events.
1: Yep, yep. I uh, I remember thinking in those terms very well. It's been it's been some time since I've had that sort of fitness or competitiveness, but uh maybe at some point. It's cold here yeah, in New for, England. You know, I'm not riding.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. For me it's always about just getting to the finish line. Like I know like if I'm doing a 100-mile event, I'm not mm-hmm. trying to win. Everybody knows I'm not winning races these days. But, you know, I'm always tempted to follow wheels, particularly mm-hmm. early on in these events. You just get your enthusiasm and adrenaline's going and you're just chasing things down, realizing like, even if you're just using perceived level of exertion, you're clearly building yourself a hole that
1: you may not be able to come out of depending on how deep you go. My, the last event that I really jumped into and, and took seriously, I recall like starting off me like, all right, I'm just gonna kind of hang. And then as people started going off the front, I drifted back a little bit. And about halfway through, I was feeling really good and I saw people just exploding. And I was like, all right, well, I'm doing this race anyways, why don't I race it? And I ended up doing doing really well in in my in my amateur group. And so that that's kind of my attitude of of uh with regards to these events is if I'm going to be competitive, not have that be the primary goal, just like be at a pace early on where I could be competitive and if I'm feeling good and other people seem to be falling off, well, all right, you know. Power ahead. Yeah, I think I've
0: get into the cave. I think I've I've been doing it long enough that I've built a long endurance engine and I know that as long as I keep it under control, I will end up picking people off down the line because Mm. I'm just, I'm most of my training, I don't do a lot of high-end stuff. I just build endurance and maybe that's totally a flaw. Like I should be doing a little high-end stuff
1: just for versatility, but like I know I
0: can keep plugging
1: away all day. Well, and as I talk about like having, you know, you you talk about having reserve and and I would definitely start slow and- barely finish if I were to jump into an event right now. So definitely need to get some more miles
0: in. Yeah, fair enough. Hey, the big thing I wanted to chat with you about uh, for Christmas, my wife generously bought me a fit. And obviously I listened to your bike fit 101 episode with Patrick Carey, got a lot out of that, but it wasn't until getting into that room and having someone with lasers and measurement and a fit kit bike really dissect me my body my flexibility that it all came together so it's quite interesting
1: yeah yeah so tell what were the big takeaways what changed some of the stuff like i know like i know that as
0: i've aged i've lost flexibility and so that was a big thing and i can get into that a, a little bit as well one of the most interesting things for me was and you guys talked about this on bike fit 101 was just cleat positioning and foot positioning on -hmm. the pedal and the amount of time we spent kind of dialing that in. For me, it translated to my cleat was too far forward. So a little Mm -hmm. bit more on the, you know, the front of my foot. And now I've moved back to the ball of the foot and it's amazing. I mean, there's not much room for cleats to move, right? There's, there's just, you know, maybe 10 millimeters in there, but the movement that we did, that the cleat did move, I definitely feel like as I stand on the pedals, my foot is more squarely in the middle of the pedal.
1: Sure, though. I mean, that ten millimeters over a you know four hundred and thirty-five or so millimeter foot or whatever your foot length is 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 substantial. Plus, you have the two cleat positions, so it's probably more like twenty millimeters of total travel. Oftentimes, it's you can't get them back far enough, as as we talked about in that episode. So, but what did you notice? Like, did your pedal stroke become more comfortable? Did you you know, ceteris paribus, presumably you would be shifting your position on the bike more forward, like your saddle position would come forward. Yep.
0: Yep. Just slightly forward. Yeah. The way I can describe it, I just feel like I'm pushing down with a bigger part of my foot. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, he asked me, do you have wide feet? And I said, not to my knowledge. And he measured it and I was like, no, you have wide feet. Mm -hmm. And I think because I've been using the cleat position towards the toe, I wasn't really feeling any of that pressure in the shoes that I've been running, but now I definitely feel that pressure on the outside of the shoe because of the way my foot is pressing on the pedal and where the pedal is kind of pushing that for- force back towards my foot.
1: Yeah, it's like the, the the first and second knuckles on your metatarsals are kind of splaying out because that's where the the the, the force is being applied.
0: That's exactly it. So it doesn't, yeah. I
1: mean, it it felt fine. Like
0: uh, t- 10 days later, I, I rode 90 miles down to Santa Cruz one day and 90 miles back. So like the position worked, I think, just interesting. And it's something I'm going to continue to observe and maybe have to get a wide shoe to feel a little bit more comfortable.
1: Potentially a wide shoe. Another thing, and, and it may or may not be appropriate in your situation, it's not something you would add to to deal with a shoe that's too narrow, but in my case, I had some pressure on the inside of my foot too, like on the big knuckle, particularly my right big toe. And I got little uh, footbeds that had kind of a button underneath the, I think the second knuckle inward, and that really helped to fix that. And it would also reduce the amount of splay in one's foot too. So if you have any sort of pressure distribution lateral issues laterally across your foot, you might experiment with footbeds first
0: yeah and and great point and something I just totally blanked on was that I did end up getting like a, a footbed issue right. as well.
1: There yeah, you go. so a lot of
0: changes down on the feet. I don't want to get too far into this, but we brought up clank, crank length mm-hmm. and hundred percent I want to move down. like yeah, it's just a matter of acquiring another crank um, to move me from 172.5 to five to 170 mm-hmm. on the on the the fit bike, like I couldn't really notice that much of a difference. But I know from talking to you and talking to Andrew, my fitter, like the benefits of going to that smaller crank size are going to make sense for me.
1: Well, and I was initially when you and I spoke, just based on your your height, I didn't, I don't think at the time I had any other measurements from you. I had recommended 165s, and you're actually quite a leggy guy. Uh, you're yeah. running a, a 768 millimeter saddle height with that 172.5 crank, so presumably. Drop into 170s, you're, you might even bump up a millimeter or two. So you and I are running the essentially the same saddle height, and I'm a smidge under 5'11. And I think you're a smidge under 5'10, right?
0: Yep, yep, yeah, exactly. So... And these are things that became highlighted, mm-hmm. and things that I sort of intuitively knew. Like I, I would always tell people when fitting a bike, oh, I'm leggy and short torso, and historically I've always had to have a shorter stem than my peers at the same height mm-hmm. to to try to get that fit correctly. But it's so fascinating, like I'm just not a super detail oriented person. So to have Andrew just measure everything to the millimeter and force these discussions has yeah. been really interesting. Yeah. So again, started at the feet bought into the crank length reduction for sure. Otherwise the bike fits me pretty well, which mm-hmm. is, which is interesting. But the one area that was highlighted and it is something I've known maybe it's partly due to having some back problems, partly due to like not being super flexible, has been the drop from the highest point of the saddle to the bar mm-hmm. center. Yep. And and the first thing that he said was, you've got the drop as if you're a Tour de France pro racer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and I recognize, so I, I have, you're on a medium, I ride a large, you have a thesis as well. And, you know, I, I used to have a medium and I had that set up pretty aggressively with a, you know, a, like a one ten stem and, you know, you, you, with that saddle height, you'd have to have your stem flipped and, you know, all the spaces underneath to get a higher handlebar position, but it's still, you know, proportionally you're, you have the legs of someone who's more like six foot, but yep. you have the yeah. torso of someone who's maybe five, eight, five, nine. And so that combination means that you either have a large with a, sh- a short stem, which isn't as great for, for road because your your front end is not planted enough. You don't have enough mass cantilevered over the front axle, or you have a, a medium where you, can, where you can get that, but you might not be able to get the height without, say, a 17 degree stem flipped upward to get that rise, which is a way that you could solve for that, but not with a, a, a shock stop stem, which you also like to run because they don't yeah. offer that option. Yeah.
0: And I remember that conversation when I was first getting the thesis about you said very specifically, and I remember you could go with a medium or a large mm-hmm. and I've always been the type of rider. And I think this goes back to my like early mountain bike routes to like, like a smaller frame size. I just find mm-hmm. them to be more nimble and, and that's what I'm drawn towards. But these fit issues and challenges I'm having is definitely making me rethink that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, being a part of this podcast and this community, I've obviously have met with tons of frame builders along the way. And I'm thinking I would love to explore what a custom fit bike would look like for me mm-hmm. because I, I like I pour through geometrygeeks.bike constantly when I'm talking to new guests who are bike manufacturers. And I, I just don't find bikes that line up to my unique leggy short torso
1: body type. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and in fact, I th- I believe that uh, the trend will continue towards even taller uh, s- uh, stack heights proportionally for a given reach on bikes, which is to say your medium, you know, the next generation thesis, which is a ways off, like it's on the drawing board now, there's no CAD file, don't, you know, don't get too excited, but that, that bike will have a proportionally taller head tube and so it would be able to accommodate what you're describing and you can still get the the lower position with a negative 17 stem and I think that that'll be a general tra- that is a general trend um, and that that will continue but when you can go full custom there's a lot you can play around with and you actually had some help from a a custom builder kind of proposing a geometry that you've sent over to me And I threw it into uh, Bike GeoCalc, which is available. What's that all about? Yeah, so this tool, uh, I've been using it for quite some time. It's uh, bikegeocalc.com. And this tool allows you to essentially take the geometry of any bike, uh, throw it up in the tool, and then tweak it, play around with it, put your own fit parameters uh, in there so you can actually see your points in space grafted onto a particular bike. Or in this case, we built up a custom bike, and then are able to have it shadow and toggle between your current thesis and how that's set up, and how this new bike is set up. So you can, you know, visually see this comparison and see, you know, the various parameters and how they relate to each other. Everything from bottom bracket height to where the, you know, where the points in space are, toe overlap issues, all this stuff kind of surfaces when you actually see it visually. So it's an awesome tool. I love this tool.
0: It's incredible because I, I wasn't aware of this yet, and on geometry geek dot bike, you can just see the numbers. Mm-hmm. And so you can compare one bike to another, which is super useful. You can p- compare five bikes. Yep. So that's super interesting. And, and that was like, I feel like the first step of my journey in understanding fit a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But this, this site that you just shared with me, and I'll share it in the show notes if I didn't say that already, super interesting to be able to toggle between the two bikes and see how does it, you know, how does it lift your bars? How does it lift the the top tube and stand over height? Like all those things become immediately apparent. And I have to say, when I look at the, the shadow bike design you created for me of the new frame, and I see that the, the handlebars go up that 40 millimeters that I desperately need to achieve to, mm-hmm. to you know, to add to that, I'm like, oh, my back would feel so good with
1: that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, the the designers of this, who who I've reached out to in the past, they they' made a smart decision of centering everything around the bound and bracket spindle, which uh, you know I've said many times before, that is the foundation of bike fit. And so you can see kind of like you know the bike is, you know, you well, let's just get right into it. Like, so talk about some of the parameters um, that you're hoping for in addition to fit with this you know potential new bike and let's talk about whether whether or not all these goals can be achieved together or whether there's some some things that you have to balance yeah i mean i absolutely love the fact that my thesis feels like a
0: great road bike and a great capable off-road bike and when i say things about this new custom bike it's really challenging what i want the bike to do because i'll say something and then you'll remind me of the net effect (laughs) Of that decision. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so like in my mind I say like oh I want a bike that can run 700 by 50s yeah in the off chance that I do a bike packing trip or something mm-hmm. and then we talk about things like okay what does the chain stay length need to be in order to achieve that what does the fork need to look like in order to achieve that yeah and all of a sudden it has me questioning because I don't I don't sit here thinking that 700 by 50 is like my daily wheel set size that I Mm. need to rock all the time. It's more of a theoretical desire of that once a year bike packing trip that I might do that I was like, oh, it'd be great to have that kind of accommodation. But so can you like walk me through like if I did go that size and everything needs
1: to be lengthened
0: out, how does the characteristics of the bike change at that point?
1: Well, they change in a bunch of different ways. So First off, like wheelbase has to increase, right? So let's say you keep the crank constant, right? Well, and you're starting with a bike that has relatively short chain stays., uh, the thesis is is 420, which is on the short end of the gravel spectrum. like that's the long end of the endurance road spectrum, short end of the gravel spectrum. Uh, so we're looking at other bikes, I think the you know, the Cervelo Espero which is another one of these kind of one bikes also has 420 chainstays. So, you know, if you want to accommodate a bigger tire, well, you need to lengthen the chainstays because otherwise that tire is going to cut into the seat tube and you could design a seat tube that has a cutout, but then you might not be able to get a dropper post in. Right. So, you know, there's, there's these compromises. Additionally, if you're working with metal, so you're talking, going full custom. Well, with metal, you need even longer chain stays because you can't get the shaping that you can get with carbon or with a, you know, an advanced hydroforming and welding process like you have on, say, a specialized smart weld aluminum bike where they're able to do some carbon-like shaping. Uh, but for the most part, like carbon allows you to make the tightest possible package because you can shape it any sort of way. Metal, you're you're much more constrained.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And part of this discussion, and I didn't specify this earlier is, I think I do recognize that 90 plus percent of my riding is going to be off-road. So having a bike that is more off-road than road makes sense for me at -hmm. this point.
1: Yeah. Well, and and so we've talked about the, the back end in a general way, right? And this would apply to a bike of any size right because you know the chain stays need to be what they are b- to accommodate the tire not the rider up front, it has to accommodate the rider because you have a reach number which is scales with the rider size and the bike's size so reach being the horizontal measurement from the center of the bottom bracket to the center of the upper headset bearing right so that, you know stack and reach yeah. being the two the two figures that are most useful in comparing bikes and so if i want to put a bigger tire on well i have to move that Front axle out somehow. Or I need to move that pedal spindle that, you know, in its most forward position. I need to move that in somehow. And, you know, crank length should be set proportionally. So if you're a smaller rider, fortunately, you need proportionally shorter cranks. So you're going down to 170. So you get 2.5 millimeters right there. So, ceteris paribus, you get 2.5 more millimeters more length. If the axle, the front axle is in the same position, well, you're going from a maximum, say, you know, right now I think you run, you know, 700, uh, 700 by thirty on the road, six fifty by forty-seven. Those are approximately the same radius. Yeah. If you run seven hundred by forty, it adds ten millimeters. If you go seven hundred by forty-five, that's another, you know, fifteen millimeters relative to six fifty B by forty-seven. So yeah. to get, and actually, six fifty B's. It's a couple millimeters smaller than the seven hundred by twenty-eight by thirty. So essentially, to go from six fifty B by forty-seven to seven hundred by forty-seven, same volume but in a bigger radius, you have to add eighteen or nineteen millimeters of radius from the center of the axle to the outside of the tire, and that is where toe overlap becomes an issue, especially on you know as you get smaller in the size range for bikes. So how do you address that? Well, you go with you know, you you make the bike longer, you extend the reach, right? So then same head tube, same fork offset, everything, you just push that out. Well, that's one way to do it. And that's how a lot of bikes have gone in in the gravel only space. And it's definitely the direction that mountain bikes have gone in. Like that's, that's been- And, that, and that's is that
0: stretching the length of the top tube?
1: Yeah. So longer top tube, longer effective top tube and longer yeah. reach. So it's, it's the reach number that's increasing and the top tube with it. And that- Uh, As a consequence, to get the handlebar in the in the hoods, you know your touch point in the same position, you have to get a shorter stem.
0: Right, right? and you see that quite often. Like if you look at a lot of bikes that are spec now, they they are going, as you said, to the direction of of the Mm -hmm. way mountain bikes went. A lot of shorter stems coming into play.
1: And if you're looking at a de facto drop bar mountain bike or a pure adventure bike, that's a fine way to go. But if you want a one bike, it's taking you away from that because you won't have enough mass cantilevered over the front axle. So the next the next thing that we can play with, and all of these, there are second order effects with these things that you change, right? So the simplest one is make the bike longer with a shorter stem. Next one we can do is have a more slacked out head angle, right? So you go from 72 degree head angle to 71.5 or 71. Usually at these head angles, wheel flop and so on really isn't an issue. That's more when you get into like mountain bikes with, you know, 65 degree head angles. Wheel flop being the bike as you turn the wheel, the bike will actually the front end will actually drop a little bit. So the bike has a tendency to want to flop over and and you know, potentially pitch you over the bars in certain situations if it's not slacked out, right? And so that slows the steering and it further Pushes out that front axle such that you have less mass cantilevered over the front axle for planting the front end, which is the case with everything you can do. The whole point is to get the front axle further away from your pedals so you don't have toe overlap, and so everything you do means you're millimeter for millimeter having less mass over that front axle for road handling, cornering, descending.
0: But if, how if we are talk we, how about, we so far? I'm 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 understanding what you're saying. Yeah, but let's talk about from. As this bike's gonna have an off-road orientation, Mm -hmm. do there then become benefits in the off-road
1: handling by having that additional length or having a slacker head tube? So there can be. There are a few different so the the things that you would be wanting off-road is well, you wanna be able you want your mass actually more over the rear. So your front wheel can roll and sail over terrain. And without you know, take a, take a dropper post out of the equation for a moment. You know, the further forward the front axle is, the more mass is going to be distributed over the rear axle. Right. So, so it would have that benefit. And then, you know, the next thing we're looking at is, you know, your trail figure and trails can be tricky for people to understand, but a, a simple way to think of it is if you're familiar with like a caster, right. So like wheels that, you know, that are on a, is a vertical axis around which, you know, the wheels can kind of, pivot uh around and they kind of the caster wheels trail behind the desk or the chair you know the office chair that they're attached to right so yeah. the fir- it's basically that contact point of the caster wheel on the ground is trailing behind the axis around which the caster can rotate yeah. right so trail is is essentially uh is that so you know, a fast handling bike will have a lower trail, less caster effect, and less propensity to go in a straight line. And a a bike that's more stability oriented will have more trail, more caster effect, and more propensity to go in a straight line.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, unlike a mountain bike, which oftentimes it needs to be nimble to get around corners and things like that, with the gravel bike... You know, I'm not necessarily on a lot of tight switchbacks and things like that. I'm, it's a lot more open fire roads. It seems to me that kind of a little bit slacked out is okay for the type of riding I'm doing.
1: Uh, yeah, though on the mountain side, even, you know, even really like pure cross-country oriented mountain bikes have slacker head tube angles than even some of the slackest uh, gravel bikes.
0: For sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah. I mean I think i don't i'd I would never want this bike to completely forego like it being fun on the road because that mm-hmm. is gonna be a component of of how I ride it mm-hmm. but i I think in this conversation it's pushing me towards I don't need to have seven hundred by fifty mm-hmm. so if I took that down to seven hundred by forty five for example mm-hmm. and the 650b wheel set is going to be the one that i would ride the sort of highest volume tire on. Mm-hmm. Where do you think that gets me on the 650? Does that get me out to 650 by 50?
1: Well, so the limiter on your 650b wheel set is not going to be radius cuz that 650 by 50 is going to be much smaller. That's equivalent to a 700 by 33 34. So radius is not your limiter there. Your limiter is tire width. And whether, and especially whether the chain stays can be designed in a way that will clear that bigger width, given that it also has to contend with the chain ring also interfering in that area.
0: Gotcha. So that's yeah. where is that where like oftentimes the solution is a drop stay.
1: Yes. So that's that's the whole reason for the existence of the drop chain stay, and so you can get to. 2.1, 2.25 or so with a single drop stay. And then you see bikes like the open wide um, Gerard Ruman's bike that have a double drop stay to f- fit 2.4 while not, you know, increasing Q factor. Because the other thing you could do is like a fat bike is just like keep increasing the Q factor of your cranks, which is the distance between where, you know, the the two places where the pedals thread into. Just make that wider and wider and you'll be able to fit a bigger tire in the back. But it's it's not going to you're not going to be able to pedal smoothly. So these are all the right the yep. constraints that we have to balance. So 2.4 yeah. is really kind of the biggest, it's the biggest tire that I would ever design a bike to accommodate that could still be a road bike because of the key yeah. factor issue.
0: I, yeah. I feel like I would be totally happy at, at 650
1: by 2.1 or 2.2. Mm. Well, and this goes to, well, if you want even more capability, you could always go mullet with a 2.4 up front and a 2.1 or 2.2 2.25 in the rear I, I do love that idea and I'm
0: totally supportive of it what's the what is the effect of that like if you have that bigger tire up front are you is that slackening the bike out because what what's it, happening there if you it is that?
1: effectively slackening the bike out trivially it's not a huge amount but so your and your front end will rise ever so slightly which is something you would want to happen anyways. If you're riding more technical terrain, but we're talking millimeters here. Yeah. And to really yeah. make a big impact, you need a flip chip, which is we'll get to in a moment. But what's nice about that sort of setup is most of your mass, no matter what, is going to be over the front axle, which means on the rear tire. Oh, sorry, over the rear axle, which means over the rear tire. And so you can go with a small knob or you know file tread or even a semi-slick in the rear, that is, you know, 2.1 or 2.2, and then go with a knobby up front. And the knobby is going to roll more slowly, but there's less mass on it. So the impact is going to be less. Yeah. So, you know, that higher volume knobby or front is going to have less impact than that same tire in the rear in terms of your rolling resistance, which makes it nice for say, you know, all the different types of terrain that you'll be tackling, including the roads between. And I'm,
0: I'm super jazzed about the idea of having that additional suspension in the higher volumes, higher up front. Yeah. Yep, Because I feel like, you know, a lot of times the limiting factor in my terrain here is that I'm just getting abused in my upper body mm-hmm. from, you know, the, the, what I'm feeling through the handlebars.
1: Yeah. Well, so yeah. then let's say that we wanted to try to, you know, make this as much of an adventure, you know, trail, sh- trail uh, sled as possible while at the same time maintaining to the full degree possible the, you know, the road experience. Yeah. Well, this is where we get into, uh, you know, adjustable geometry. Now, I think the most important consideration for adjustable geometry is really the front. That's where you get the biggest change. You can, you know, you you change the heights of the front end by ten millimeters, and you know the adjust the. Um, the offset by you know three four millimeters in the process with certain forks like the NV Adventure fork that you and I had talked about. There's a couple other forks that are designed according to that same philosophy, and and that you know it drops the front end, it quickens or slows down the steering, and combined with you know an off road setup where you run a bigger tire up front, you're getting the extra height of the tire, you're getting the extra height from the axle being positioned further out on the fork, so. A, bigger axle to from, crown from the
0: flip so from the from, flip in off-road mode you're going up is that
1: in off-road mode in the flip you would be going out away oh, okay so you're extending the length of the fork okay which is bringing gotcha. the front end up and it's also slackening things out and you know in a bike with the same tire size and the same head tube angle if that was not varying And you change you increase the fork offset, you would be decreasing the trail. So it'd be quickening the steering. But because you're slackening the head angle and increasing the tire radius at the same time, the net change in caster ends up being nothing, or or you end up increasing that that you know that trail figure, that caster effect. So that it's it's actually a great way to do
0: it. Every time we've talked about flip chips, I'm there with you. Like it just seems it gives designers. And riders in terms of altering the performance of their bike, just
1: a bigger range of options to lean into road mode versus off-road mode. Mm-hmm. And and the way to do a flip chip, in my in my opinion, is have the flip chip move the axle up and inward perpendicular to the caliper. And then you run a 180 caliper in dirt mode when it's you know extended out, and then you run a 160, sorry, a one a 180 rotor in dirt mode in a 160 rotor in in road mode. And in that way right. your two wheel sets have the rotor size that is appropriate for that experience and you don't have to move the caliper which is a real pain in the butt when swapping wheel sets. So this can be like a hot swap. You just flip, you know, remove the wheel, flip the chip. Maybe you have to adjust the position slightly of the caliper, but you don't have to unbolt it and put on some adapter and all this other stuff with some designs right. that I think is just a non-starter.
0: Yeah, I haven't looked into the details of that NV fork to see if that would be required. The movement of the caliper, it's not. In order to you to... can run, okay.
1: Yeah, and and so that they've done it the way that I would do it. There's another company, Eight Bar, that has a bike that's done it the way that I would do it. I I might do a couple of things. Uh, well, we'll see that when you know a year out from now when when I'm able to introduce that. But uh, in general, though, that's that's the way I think a flip chip fork should be done for a gravel bike. And do you think on that
0: NV fork, you use two different size rotors or are you on the same size rotor on that one? I
1: believe you use, you can use two different size rotors. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Super interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, man, I mean, this has been super helpful and I imagined it would be and seeing that bike geometry calculator, super cool and understanding these trade-offs. And I think this is really helpful, like freeing the designer to say, if I say seven hundred by fifty, let's talk about seven hundred by fifty on the front wheel mm-hmm. only, and not try to accommodate that on the rear wheel, so we don't have to bring the stays out so far.
1: Hmm. I mean, you could go moto style and have a seven hundred front and a six fifty rear. <laughs> <laughs> the old Trek sixty nine er. Yeah, though it actually for 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 bicycles versus motorbikes, it's it doesn't make as much sense because on a motorbike, you have all the power coming out of the motor versus if you run a big, you know, high volume 650 in the rear and a skinnier lower volume 700 in the front, you're losing this suspension effect up front and you're gaining rolling resistance in the rear. So it's the exact opposite of what you would want. So it makes less sense. Yeah.
0: yeah. No, I think, I mean, I would run the same size wheels Yeah. whenever I'm running it, but it does sound like, you know, if I, if I made that requirement in the rear, and I'd love to get your advice on this, is 700 by 45 enough of accommodation to kind of bring that chainstay length in, or do I need to say 700 by 40 is the max that I would run in the rear?
1: Yeah, and that will depend on how on the limitations of whomever is fabricating your frame. So if they're working in in carbon with full full freedom in terms of how that form takes shape, and they're doing you know volume runs, then that's one set of constraints. If it's a guy or a gal in their garage working with titanium and bending, you know, bending two, two uh, tubes in a vise, you know, that's a different set of constraints, and you need to have a longer chainstay just because of the way that things have to be fabricated. Uh, so that's something we can play with. And when we put the bike geocalc tool in the show notes, it will be the link to Craig's specific the bike that he's considering building now, as of this conversation, and his current thesis. And in a future episode, we'll post what he ultimately ends up with if he decides to do a custom bike. So, if you want to contribute to the conversation, take a look um, in the show notes at at what Craig currently has up there, and and uh, you know jump into the ridership, you know the Gravel Ride podcast channel, and uh, provide some feedback on how you think this thing should be built.
0: Yeah, awesome, cool. Thanks, Randall that's going to do it for this week. As Randall just said, if you have any commentary on this, and I would love to get people's feedback, please join us in the ridership. Just visit www.theridership.com. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can visit buymeacoffee.com slash the gravel ride. There's a couple different membership options or one-time contributions. Everything is vastly appreciated by both of us. So that's going to do it for this week's episode. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.